the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw drawing the regions of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth. For the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we will make, will walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into the plowshares and their spears into the pruning hooks. Nations will not take up swords against nation, nor will they train for war any more. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut it out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you, what am I going to do with my vineyard? I will take away its hedge and I will, it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah. Are there vines he delighted in? And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. Now reading from Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 14. Let not debt remain outstanding, except for the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and 
whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not harm, does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding in the present time, the hour has already come to you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when was first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the, the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and, not, and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. In the name of Christ, amen. Okay. Thank you, Paul. Let's pray, shall we? Come, Lord Jesus, come now to our hearts. Uh, you came the first time in great humility. You'll come again in glorious majesty. So teach us to wait in a transformative way. Uh, we pray this in, in your name. Amen. So as we've been hearing, today is the first Sunday in a season called Advent. Uh, it's the beginning of the liturgical year, for those who care. I could say Happy New Year, but I won't because, you know, I don't care that much. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's an interesting season. The Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means appearing. His appearing, his coming, his arrival. And the season says strongly, our hope arrives at his arrival. It comes with his coming. It appears with his appearing. Uh, and we say the first time he came, God came in great humility. That's what that's why we're talking about mangers, and, uh, but he will come again in glorious majesty, and we'll pray that in a prayer that Katrina leads in a few moments' time. We say it in the creed that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and he'll come in a moment. The Apostle Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye. Jesus himself says, like a thief in the night, and it's hard not to think that he's speaking truth cheekily when he says so. He's the thief that comes in the night. Our Advent series, The Weary World Rejoices, and we're looking at purple passages in Isaiah, the royal passages. Um, most of the texts you'll see on page uh, one, they are the texts leading up to the birth of the baby boy, uh, prophesied centuries before. And today is just a brief introduction to Isaiah and to the series. Because, as I said in the video, ours is not the first world to rejoice, would be naive to think so. Pretty sure your great-grandparents had a harder one than we have, despite how difficult the year has been. Isaiah's world was weary too, those words that Paul read out to us, 8th century BC, to Israel, suffering under judgment, and yet peppered throughout Isaiah is promise after promise after promise after promise that he will come. Our purple passage today, our raw passage is Isaiah 2 verses 1 to 5, 
and it's about something that is going to happen to Jerusalem and then from Jerusalem. But you'll see on page 11 the outline, what's the weariness experienced by Israel? How did they rejoice? And thirdly, what does it mean for us in this season or in any season? So firstly, what's the weariness experience? I think one of the helpful ways to think about the Old Testament is that it is a stage. It's a stage upon which a play takes place, a true one, don't get me wrong, it's all happening in history. But the Old Testament really is that God has a story to tell about Israel's history. It's a lost and found story about his son, Israel. So it's a story about death and resurrection. Um, Judgment, then grace. Despair, then hope. But here's the key to understanding the idea that it's a stage. Namely, that God has an audience for that story. And the audience is the whole world, not just Israel. And so here I am, I'm an Australian, both sides 1840, and then before that, Scotland. Ever been through Moffat? Scotland. But here I am watching a story that, on first glance, has no relevance to me. I, but I watch the story of Israel. I do so by reading the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and in doing so, I'm watching a love story unfold. And if I can put it this way, I've put the seat down in, on, in, in row W19. I made that up. Where are you sitting, you see? Put the seat down. I'm watching the story unfold. And it is a love story. That's why I chose Isaiah 5 to be read. I will sing for the one I love a song. God says, I'll serenade Israel, a song about his vineyard. My loved one, says God, had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, he cleared it of its choice stones, and he planted it with the choicest vines. All you gardeners know what we're talking about, the sort of care that goes in to a vineyard. God hoped for fruit on the vine of Israel, and yet, 5 verse 4, when I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? A metaphor Jesus uses for people in his own time. Who is the vineyard? 5 verse 7, the prophet tells you, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines that he delights in, he loves. But he looked for justice, and he saw only bloodshed. He Look for righteousness, good fruit, and he heard only cries of distress, injustice. Now that might sound all depressing, but bear in mind that it's a love story. 5 verse 4, what more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? You know, I love my vineyard, I love my son, we'll hear that in a moment. But it is a world wearied by sin, it's a love story, but not a soppy one, not a sentimental one, it's a love story with backbone. It's a world weary by sin and indeed death. So God says, now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge. You're thinking, is that Job? No, Job was unwarranted suffering. This is warranted suffering. And it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled on. We'll come to what that means in a moment. This all is a point made in the opening verses of the play of, of Isaiah. Uh, in the opening verses, it's, it's not vineyards, but about raising children. 
and uh, some of you have raised children into adulthood and you know it's complex, right? You know it's complex. If you've raised children into childhood, then you have something of the heartbeat of our Lord. You don't get it only this way, you get it a number of ways, but this is one way to get it. Chapter 1, verse 1 dates the book in, in, uh, in history in 740s BC, and then the opening words of Isaiah, Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, even Australians of Scottish descent living a long way away, not immediately applicable. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children, I brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. The ox appears smarter, the donkey appears wiser, the ox appears to know the master, and the donkey seems to know where to find rest, but my, my children, Israel, they don't. They've really um, stuffed up their lives. We see ourselves in them, in the same way that many of us see ourselves in the parable of the prodigal son. Now, to get this, in preparing this talk, I just wished I could be I could transport us all back, which is the way to access it, right? To see what's going on there and then, to see the, the sin, the personal moral failure, the, you know, the, the, the sexual sin as well as greed and, and, um, and injustice and the way the poor are treated. You'll see the rejection of God and the pain of exile. Talk about that in a moment. And indeed, Isaiah 25, the sheet of death that covers the nations. I wish we could be transported back in time. But we have this book instead, this play, and here I sit, W19. Where are you sitting? Watching the story unfold. And the book basically makes a single prophecy to Israel that you'll be invaded the north will be invaded by Assyria in the 8th century BC. Later in the book, the south by Babylon in the 6th century BC. They'll be put to the sword, defeated, and indeed exiled away from home. A weary world. <laughs> in fact, the images used for exile in the book of Isaiah are used in part by Jesus to talk about hell which is itself is fascinating. The final verse of the book of Isaiah is the words, their worm never dies, which is on the lips of Jesus. He uses this as a metaphor to, to explain a thing you want to avoid, the just judgment of God. But as we watch this play, we realize that we are like the sun. Uh, we realize that we too live in a weary world, as if bushfires, floods, then a pandemic, and my goodness, world politics, so wearisome. We live and have always lived in a world compromised, suffering, unjust, sinful, but in the end, if you read scripture, it's about the ignorance of God. Isaiah 29 verse 16 might sum up the whole book. 
God says to Israel, you turn things upside down. As if the potter, God, were thought to be like clay, moldable in your hands. He's the potter, we're the clay. We're made for him, not him for me. He doesn't dance to make me happy. We are made in his image, not him made in mine. So first. Secondly, how do they rejoice? Well, (laughs) read the book. They rejoiced because of a promise that they were required to believe. And it was in the thick of despair, in the middle of lament, sowing tears. A promise that he would come that made Israel leaner, hungrier. A promise that he would come and restore his son, Israel, and to save the whole world, the whole ruined world with him. It's a promise made in love, since God intends to keep his promise. And it's about the world you live in. It's not a flight of fancy. Uh, George Ladd from Fuller Seminary said, nowhere in salvation, nowhere is salvation conceived of as a flight from history, as in Greek thought, like, oh, I hope to die and go up somewhere. No, no. It is always the coming of God to man in history. Man does not ascend to God. God descends to man to recreate a new world, Isaiah 65, verse 17 and following. Behold, I'll create a new, new Jerusalem, picked up by the writer of Revelation. But when he comes to Israel and to Jerusalem, the goodness he offers is promised to the world via a word, via a gospel. Something happens in Jerusalem, and then a word is taken from Jerusalem to the nations, Isaiah chapter 2, our purple passage today, causing a new knowledge of God and indeed, eventually, world peace. And I know what I'm saying when I say that. Chapter 4, verse 2, in the last days, in days to come, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. This sort of, I don't know what it is, it's an image, a metaphor of, of, of this spot rising, so that all nations then stream to it. It's got a new Eden feel about it. And something happens where the temple is. The Jews thought of the temple as the navel of the earth. Many peoples, verse 3, will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. They'll see the play of his son Israel and they'll say, he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. That's the motto, I hope, of my life. That God teaches me his ways because I'm done with my own ways that I might walk in his path because my path uh, is wayward. And the law then will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The law here is as the Torah. And you just have to go to Romans 13 to say that whatever law there is, it's summed up in love your neighbour. But I don't think that's what's going on here. The law or Torah is the story of God's saving love, his profound work. And so in the New Testament, the Torah is fulfilled in the gospel, the word of the Lord going from Jerusalem, where Jesus lived, to, say, Australia, to people of Scottish descent, listening, sitting in W19, wanting to know the story of God. But the promise is that peace comes not just to hearts, not just to hearts, it was read to us a few moments ago, 
Come, let us settle the matter. Isaiah 1, verse 18 on page 6. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They are, though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Peace to the human heart first, but eventually to the world. Chapter 2, verse 4. He will judge between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. You want world peace? It's here. This is the promise. I'm hungry for it. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, weapons beaten into fishing gear. <laughs> Those words, by the way, swords into plowshares, are chiseled on stone on First Avenue in New York City right outside the United Nations. But peace does not come through the murky world of politics, as important as it is, in this in-between time. Ultimately, peace comes with God, not just from God, but with God, with his arrival. He is the light, he is the dawn, not the security council. You'll be pleased to know. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. This is our hope. Therefore, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Something happening in Jerusalem, he will come, says the book of Isaiah, and then from Jerusalem, a word to the world. But you read the rest of Isaiah, when he comes, he comes with a surprise. Chapter 7, next week, a sign, a young woman will conceive, picked up in the birth narratives. In chapter 9, a son will be born who will be called Mighty God, bringing peace. In chapter 11, a little shoot, a little green shoot, from the stump of a tree called Israel cut off. And he will judge between nations. A servant who dies, disfigured for many. Chapter 53. And when God comes, chapter 35, then in that moment, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. And I read that and think, that's my testimony. I once was blind, but now I see. You know, you know I was deaf, choosing to hear only the words I wanted to hear and rejecting everything else because I thought that, the, that God was a piece of clay in my hand. But now my ears are unstopped. I hear his voice. The lame leap for, deer, for like a deer. You know, I was lame, but I, well, not literally, but I now follow Jesus, uh, rejoicing. You know, if I'm honest, I had nothing really to sing about, nothing of substance, but now I, my mute tongue shouts for joy. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. When John the Baptist wasn't sure about Jesus, I mean, who was in the, in, in the time, he sent a note from prison to Jesus. Uh, you can see Jesus unraveling the note in his hands. And it says on the note, are you the one to come? Maybe it was delivered in word, but are you the one to come? Are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied, you go back and report to John what you've seen and what you've heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, 
the dead are raised and good news is proclaimed to the poor. All purple passages of Isaiah. Here's the truth. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. It's a weary world. And yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You can see how important Isaiah is for the New Testament. And as I sit there in, what is it, W19, where are you? I'm begging for the end of the story. Thirdly then, what does it mean for us in this season? According to Paul in Romans 13, it means waking up. It means we need to wake up. Paul writes, Romans 13, verse 11, love one another, understanding the present time, because you get the moment. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, right? The dawn is almost there because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So first thing to do is to wake up from your sleep. The night is nearly over, verse 12. The day is almost here. It's almost morning. So you do what you do every morning. You put aside a set of clothing and you put on a new set of clothing. You put aside the PJs. You put aside here the deeds of darkness and you put on what Paul calls the armour of light which perhaps is defined in verse 14 as clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, ready for the day, having woken up. And one of the keys you learn in a weary world is that we wait. And there's lots of things to do, and I'll come to that in a moment. But the basic mode of God is that we wait, but it's a particular kind of waiting. James K.A. Smith says, you know, we come to church every week to get into the habit of thirsting again. So he says, we live leaning forward, bent on arriving at the place that we long for. How many sleeps, we say, leaning forward. And I want this, this place we long for, this future that God has prepared. I'm watching the play from W19 and I'm saying, this is my story. This son, Israel, leads to the son, Jesus Christ. I'm the sinner and Christ is the Saviour. I want him to come. And so Advent is the season in which we cry with the prophet Isaiah, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. 64 verse 1. It's the season in which we say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. Isaiah 35 verse 4. And where we invite people, Isaiah 60, to arise, shine, your light has come, the glory of the Lord has risen on you. You can see why the hope is for the powerless. Because all you've got to do is be thirsty. All you've got to do is be hungry. Our hope is in God. He is the climax. It's the same message as the book of Job. So wake up, get up. Our hope is in his dawn. He's appearing. And so we are people who wait. The New Testament says as much. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 10, we await a saviour. For we wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. We say he came in great humility. He'll come again in glorious majesty. And so perhaps one of the things you take away here is that we're not, first of all, activists. And many of you can do great things. But in the first instance, we are people who rest in the promise of his appearing. We're not first activists nor are we passive either. I call us waitists. I made that up. You like it? 
We're waitists, not waiters, although I'm happy to serve. We are people who wait. And so we need to slow down and say, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, bring world peace, because lots of people are trying, lots of busyness, lots of United Nations meetings. Many of us are too busy to wait, too active to slow down. Our lives are too loud to be quiet again. Our minds are filled with unchallenged thoughts and they're often cluttered. I know what that's like. And you feel like the status quo is the status quo for a reason. Things never, never change. But a friend of mine wrote that we need to stand out by sitting down. I love that idea, stand out by sitting down. He wrote, Advent is a period for those who follow the coming Christ to stand out by sitting down, by not joining in the rush and hurry and endless activity. We rest in him. But what does the resting look like or waiting look like for an unbeliever? Is it boring where you do nothing? My wife spoke uh, here on, at this church on uh, Friday at a, at a uh, service and uh, she tells this story. She says, last week, someone rear-ended my car. Uh, if you see me driving around in a little Peugeot, you'll know why. She wrote, last week, someone rear-ended my car and I had to take it to get fixed at the panel beaters. I drove the car in, I handed over my car keys and a taxi was called. And then I did what any car owner has to do when a car is in for repairs. I waited. I sat in a room with grey chairs and grey walls and I waited. Alone with music from the radio piped over the speaker and the occasional boiling of a kettle and the hum of a refrigerator. I was there for what felt like a very, very long time. And all I wanted to do was to go home to avoid the waiting room. She raises the question, if this is, the, is this the kind of waiting that we're talking about? Grey chairs and grey walls and lousy music, being bored. I dare say, if you think this is the waiting that we're talking about, then you do not know God. Or there's something to learn. If we think waiting is a grey room, then we've got lots more to think about during the series and in life. She writes, waiting in idleness in a grey room with weak tea and bad coffee, is that how we are to wait? Far from it. We wait with eager expectation. Jesus used words like hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so we wait pursuing righteousness and peace and justice. We have a life-changing waiting. But we have an opportunity, by the way, not to be burnt out like lots of people who think they'll change the world the moment they join social work or whatever it is that people do. We have an opportunity not to be burned out because we're not saying that, it's got the, that the problems will be solved by the time I get onto the field. It's the kind of waiting where we look for a fight. It's why we put on armour, what Paul calls the armour of light. It's a fight against sin within. It's a ruthless love for others. It's a life of prayer. Thy will be done, not my will be done. It's about sowing tears, expecting a return. 
It's a ruthless desire to find out and then yield to his will in the power of the Holy Spirit, and most of all, to surrender to grace. It's about deeper discipleship. It's about compelling community as we sow together in our own tears in community, expecting a return of joy and testifying to the hope that we have. Maybe the apostle's words, a, per a perfect ending. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Shall we pray? Father, it is a weary world, there's no doubt about it, and uh, some of us don't like to dwell on that uh, because we'd prefer to just think about happier things, and there's a power in that, and, uh, and uh, it's worked for many uh, sometimes, and at least for a season. And yet we're looking for something deeper, um, something more profound, something more substantial. We're looking for a hope that comes in your appearing, a miraculous comprehensive personal knowledge and vindication of our place before a holy God forgiven and cleansed. We're looking for a comprehensive and powerful peace between nations where there simply isn't any more reason to own a weapon. We yearn for it. And so we pray, come Lord, we ask you to do a thing in our lives to help us to wait, but to wait with thirst, to wait with hunger, not in a grey room board, but alive in your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.